It's Nick Jaina time. I'm Nick Jaina, and I'm reading from my book, which is titled, Get It While You Can. Chapter One I am staring out the window at an orange kite hanging in the air. Its long tail is fluttering in the wind, but for a solid minute now, the diamond of the kite body has stayed motionless in the sky, almost as if it were pinned there. From my angle, I can't see the person holding the kite, and I'm much too far away to see the string. Just now, the unseen person has decided to let out more line. At first, the kite shudders like a sick dog trying to back out of one of those horrible neck cones. And then it accepts its new directive and rises out of view. To sum up, I'm looking out the window at a person flying a kite, but I can't see the person or the kite or the string. I see nothing. For a long time, I thought music was the thing that would ground me. I still believe that in some ways, but what I've been caught up in lately is this. I feel that I'm good at writing a song, at being able to play guitar, at all the various skills that go into making a record, and yet for many years, I've had the strong feeling that I have failed at music. Worse yet, I feel that since I've devoted my life to music, I've failed at life. I came to the Oregon coast because I want to learn how to sail. A young man named Daniel is my teacher. He's working at an Irish pub in town while helping his friend prepare his 29-foot fiberglass full-keel sailboat for a long sea voyage. In the spring, the two of them are going to try to sail to Hawaii. Last night, walking me along the shore, Daniel talked about the basics of sailing with the kind of enthusiasm that comes from being in the middle of learning about it himself. He told me about how the golden arcs on Earth give you the most direct line to a destination. He explained the logic of referring to port and starboard as opposed to saying left or right when people might be facing different directions. He has a way of explaining things in a direct and respectful way that doesn't feel like a lecture. In between discussions of sailing, he showed me how to juggle three balls by standing in front of a wall to ensure that everything I threw was on the correct plane. This morning, he left me with a very old copy of Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet while he went to work. The covers are torn off and some pages are missing. I lingered on this passage. 
says, but in every sickness, there are many days when the doctor can do nothing but wait, and that is what you, insofar as you or your own doctor, must now do more than anything else. And this. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. Learning to sail is an exercise in patience and humility. Our fate is dictated by the winds and the water and yet we're able to take some fundamental control over that fate and make micro-adjustments that get us where we want to go. Sometimes even across an entire ocean. Getting there requires investing in skills and knowledge that are older than our grandfathers. When we're feeling ungrounded or rudderless, there's no better time to look for the arcs that extend beyond our own lifetimes. Long, smooth arcs, like the fiberglass keel of a sailboat. Submit to the great unspoken grace of the enduring world. At least that's my hope. We take the boat out on the calmest day of the year. It is one of those overcast days on the northern coast where sky and sea are the same color gray and once you get out on the open water, you can't see the land anymore and you feel like you're in a Homeric poem where someone has cast a spell to put you in an in-between world. I feel okay for about five minutes, and then I start to get seasick. I have a few seconds to plan where I'm going to throw up. I try to lean over the railing, but don't get all the way. My half-digested eggs and toast sit on the side of the railing for a few seconds before a wave comes and takes them away. After a year of intense emotional churning, it is satisfying to have my insides come out to just study them and say, well, there you are, the roots of all this suffering. But my sickness doesn't go away after throwing up or even when we get back to land. I've only been able to help Daniel out with a few lines, tie a few knots, mostly I've been ballast. For this day, his training hasn't paid off. I can't even handle the calmest day of the year on the Pacific. I was upended by something I couldn't see. The rest of the world keeps insisting that invisible things don't matter, but like the kite outside the window, just because my frame of reference doesn't show me anything doesn't mean that nothing is there. Thank you.
Chapter 2 Since I was 16, I've been on an orbit with music at the center. My traveling companion has been a Blue Ridge Dreadnought acoustic guitar that I bought for $300 in 1994 at the Fifth String Music Store in Sacramento. Dozens of times, I've checked that guitar at the airport. Stowing it below the aircraft without worrying about it, I've probably written thousands of songs on it, played hundreds of gigs. I've gotten far more than $300 of use out of it, so I figure if one day I lose it, I'll survive. Yet every time it comes out of the oversized baggage slot next to the golf clubs and surfboards and I see that it hasn't been broken in half, I feel a little like Calvin when he takes Hobbs out of the dryer. The instant Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit tore out of the speakers of my high school's quad during lunch. I knew I had to find a way to hold something as visceral as that song in my hands. It wasn't a new song anymore, but it was new for me. I'd been sheltered from most popular music as a kid. So my older brother Matt gave me the phone number of his old guitar teacher. At my first lesson, I learned how to make a power chord. Days later, Kurt Cobain killed himself. At my next lesson, I pulled out the piece of paper with the chords to Smells Like Teen Spirit. So, yeah, my teacher said. That was a bummer. Well, let's hear you play the song. bought his biography after he died. Here's someone who knows what it means to be sad, I thought. It sounded noble. Now I just think of him as someone who couldn't stop falling down and hurting himself. Still, I had never thought of lyrics as poetry until I heard him expressing all his confusing contradictions that came closer to the truth by plotting out opposite points. When I was 16, I got myself a subscription to the Time Life book series, Voyage Through the Universe. Every month a cardboard box would arrive, containing a new volume showing photos taken from the probe surveying the planets. I remember this little diagram that demonstrated that orbiting is the same as falling, but falling at the same rate that the ground below you falls, so that you never crash into the object that you were orbiting. Earth matches its orbit with Mars three times for every four times it matches up with Venus. In music, this is the definition of a triplet, three beats existing in the rhythmic space of four. When you start accenting these notes, you get swing music. When you cut out the middle note, you get shuffle time. Those simple rhythms are what got people dancing in the 20th century. My music was forever changed. When I moved to New Orleans at the age of 21, I found a job as a busboy at the Napoleon House in the French Quarter, where they serve a Pimm's Cup, topped by a slice of cucumber. When they ran out of cucumbers, they'd send me to the A.M.P. to get more, and I would walk across Jackson Square and see the ad hoc jazz band that was assembled on the bench. An invisible benefit to the evolution of music in New Orleans is the thickness of every molecule in the atmosphere there. A trumpet is just a big plunger that moves air, and if that air is thicker, it makes a richer sound, perhaps... That's one of the reasons why jazz wasn't invented in a city like Denver. 
While living in New Orleans, I wrote a song on my Blue Ridge called Bottles on the Tracks, in which I made up a story about a derailed train that was blamed on a man who liked to put empty beer bottles on the tracks so he could hear the smash and the clickety-clack. You say that pain is something in your heart that you can't fix. I know what you mean. I felt that way since I was 16. My dad has always stressed the importance of taking care of one's belongings in order to maintain their resale value. After bashing out cords on it enough times in bars and on street corners, I decided I was never going to sell my guitar and so the resale value wasn't as important as making it mine. I sanded the top down and started to stain it purple. I let the stain dry and sanded it down some more. Somehow the half purple shade worked and I left it that way. Everyone thought that this discoloration came from sweat or blood and that was fine too. Since I'd already given up on ever selling my guitar, I felt like it was okay to put that sticker on it. Being rough can be a pure expression of love, like when a mother cat grabs her kittens with her teeth and chucks them around. That's how my guitar looked for years, with the half purple stain and the New Orleans sticker. In New Orleans, there's an echo of Mars and Venus, and the musicians there take that rhythm and play it as casually as feeding a dog. They're so skillful, but they play like they just don't care, which makes it all so much more compelling. On September 5th, 1977, the day before I was born, NASA launched the Voyager 1 spacecraft to survey the outer planets. It had a golden record on it with several songs from Earth, a mixtape in case an extraterrestrial came across it. If it were sent today, we'd probably put a hard drive in there containing MP3s of pretty much everything ever recorded, but there's only so much room on a record. So this mix included Bach's Brandenburg Concerto, some gamelong music from India, and Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground, recorded by Blind Willie Johnson, who spent his last days so poor that he slept in a burned-down house. While Voyager 1 has left our solar system, I've mostly just sat here and thought about stuff. It reached Saturn around the time I was forming the ability to create memories. By 1990, Voyager 1 was able to take a family portrait of all the planets of the solar system, gathered as they were on that black leather couch of space, resembling tiny pixels in a vast darkness. On one of those specks of light, I was cataloging baseball statistics on a PC. I'd invented a simulated baseball game using dice, compiling rosters from the box scores and the newspapers. I would roll the dice for each play, then tabulate the statistics and write a story about each game. Once enough games had been played, I would print out my own newspaper complete with recaps and the accompanying box scores. I'd flesh out the statistics with invented drama and absurdist quotes from the players. Cubs manager Don Zimmer was ejected from the game in the seventh inning after arguing with the umpire that if time is an illusion, we can't be held accountable for our past actions, said first baseman Mark Grace. I guess he was wrong. That computer I typed on was already more powerful than the one that sent the Voyager into space, and now my phone is at least two million times faster at processing data than the car-sized object 19 billion kilometers away that NASA is trying to communicate with. It's as if we launched the first Pong arcade game into space decades ago, and forever after are forced to hack our way into that game. 
to get to the answers to our place in the universe. on the phone with my mom. Hi, mom. Hi. Hi, Nick. Hi. She's in Sacramento. And, uh, and uh, mom, you just uh, sent me an email telling me a story from uh, third grade. And could you just re- rehash that story? Um, sure. Um, it, it came to mind. Well, you'll, you'll know why it came to mind when I tell the story. But when you were in the third grade, you were in what was called a split, and half of the kids were third graders and half of the kids were fourth graders. And the fourth graders were seemed a lot older than you, and they were like a little clique that hung out together. And there was um, what you call open house night at school, and then they had on display some of the little essays or or things that the kids had put up and the topic was what do you want to be when you grow up and so walking around and looking at the different essays and the children were all standing there at the same time I would say most of the fourth grade boys had as their goal in life to be a millionaire like Donald Trump (laughs) and and it was it was kind of shocking to me that that was their goal. I was surprised that they knew who he was, but he was in the news a lot, even out here in California in the late 80s and 90s. And um, he was considered very rich and very flamboyant even back then. And at the time, I was kind of shocked and a little dismayed because all they wanted was to be rich. They didn't really want to do anything else. And then your goal was you wanted to be a writer. And that was, and sadly, I really don't remember what your essay was like. Um, But I know even then you knew you wanted to be a writer and you weren't into music much then. So clearly it was more about the writing. And when I wrote you that email, I just had that fleeting memory of Donald Trump because he's been on the news so much and everyone is thinking, who would vote for this man? Who would vote for this man? And my question to you is, were these boys, fourth grade boys, the ones who now still think Donald Trump is wonderful and now they want to be billionaires and that's why they would vote for him because they've admired him for that long of a time um it just seems kind of sad to me so right yeah and this is uh this is march 2016 and it looks like he's going to be the republican nominee for president which is really strange (laughs) who knows where that will lead i know it's it started out fun and funny (laughs) and um i like to watch the comedy shows and see what they say about him, but um, I don't think it'll be funny if he's the president. So, 
So in, in your memory, like this was several of the kids in class. Oh yeah. S- said the same thing. And I, and I didn't care about being rich. Or no, being rich. no, <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. No. And those boys kind of ran in a pack, I think sort of. So one kid said, I'm going to be, you know, they just copied each other. I don't, I don't think any of them really thought it through. And it sounded like, yeah, I'm going to be a millionaire like Donald Trump. So it's not like they really gave it a lot of thought, but that's who they knew of who was a millionaire and how he lived. So, and you didn't really hang with those kids. They were fourth graders and you were third graders. So there really was a delineation in that grade because it was, you were, you were not a fourth grader and they knew that they weren't mean to you, but they just, hung out together. <clears throat> so that was my memory that just came to me, which I hadn't thought of in 30 years. <laughs> uh-huh. So <clears throat> was that the first time you remember me saying I wanted to be a writer or did that seem natural? No, but you, maybe the first time you actually put it down on paper or said it out loud, but even then I had another memory you want me to elaborate on when you were in kindergarten, when you were in kindergarten, we took a trip, a family trip to Washington, D.C. And I had to take you out of school for a week. And I went and talked to the teacher and she said, well, have Nick, you know, write up a, a journal of what he did every day. So every day when we and I mean, you could barely read or write then. But every day you took it to heart and you wrote down what we did. And we went to see this museum. We went to the Smithsonian. We went here. And actually you got very sick and ended up, we had to take you to the emergency room. And that didn't make it into your story. You left that out of your story, but you just, you just talked about, and they were very simple sentences and a very simple, you know, like a first grader or a kindergartner would write and then the teacher had you read that in in class to all the rest of the students. And you were very proud of that. I know that you got to read that to everyone about what you did in uh, Washington, D.C. So so that even then you were a good writer and the teachers could see that and had you stand up <laughs> and was, tell people. How was my use of metaphor then? Hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there were there were any. So you honed that craft later. I didn't let my personal illnesses, failings get in the way of the story. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Never brought it up. It was funny. Well, that's And changed. then, of course, when you, I don't know what grade you were in, freshman in high school, when you had to write your, your life story. And you wrote a really good life story with chapters and everything, your your biography or whatever. And... The teacher was kind of ho-hum. Dad and I were so impressed at how, how articulate you were and how you stuck to the facts. And I'm sure you remember that because she was She hated me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. she was C, very mean to you. see on that or something, yeah. <clears throat> and she was jealous. I think so. <laughs> you had crossed her at some point, and that was it. You were never going to be on her good side, so. <laughs> yeah. But there were many instances where... You were, you were writing, and we, um, we could see you had some talent. So, <laughs> and we kept telling you that. So, um, yeah, I think well, we did. I think I hope you remember that we encouraged you. Well, 
it worked. Okay. Thanks for your support. <laughs> Dear Blank, do you know about quantum entanglement? It's when two particles interact in such a special way that even if you separate them, their movements will continue to affect one another. You could be in Los Angeles with one of these particles, and I could be in New York. And if your particle spins a certain way, my particle will spin that way too. This connection happens instantaneously, which is to say that it's faster than the speed of light. This is such a remarkable scientific fact that I can't understand why everyone isn't talking about it every day. This is more important than healthcare or algebra or the housing market. You could say that our desire to bridge distance is what is killing us. More and more we want to get to places faster and we are burning ourselves up to make that happen. It doesn't make any sense. If we are already connected to everything, we can stay right where we are. There are cords around your heart connecting you to different emotions and places and people. You can't see them physically, but that doesn't matter. When you love something, your heart ties itself around it like it's tying a string around something it doesn't want to forget. There's a cord that runs from my heart to yours for example, and it goes right through the center of the earth. It is a long, stretchy cord. Sometimes it has slack in it, and I can't feel your pull, and I wonder if you're still there, or if you've slipped out of it somehow. Other times, it tightens, and I can feel every movement, and I know what you're feeling without you even telling me. doesn't obey borders or pacts of marriage or care how many babies you pass through your body. It is an interloper and it breaks all the rules of human society and maybe that's why nobody wants to talk about it. We don't ever have to talk about it, but still, I promise you, that cord is there. You don't even have to wait for the achingly slow currents of light to bring you these messages. They're already there. 
Yours presently, Nick. been Nick Jaina time. Today I read three chapters from my book, Get It While You Can, from Perfect Day Publishing. All musical accompaniment written and recorded by me. Theme music by Richie Green. What you heard today is what I do live around the world 150 nights a year. My book is available online, along with tour dates at nickjaina.com. That's N-I-C-K-J-A-I-N-A. N-I-C-K-J-A-I-N-A.